Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode and just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I am pleased to present Duncan Lament and Philippe Lespinard. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much to everybody for joining us today and thank you particularly for Philippe for giving up his time to, to, to come on today's call. Um, so there's, there's a few things I think we want to talk about today. Um, I guess in terms of what's going on in the past week or so, one of the key areas of attention was around the Federal Reserve in the US. Um, hiked interest rates in line with expectations, so it took its target rate for the Fed funds rate to 2 to 2.25%. Two As this was pretty much a nailed on certainty, there wasn't really much of a reaction in bond markets. Um, overall, pretty upbeat statement on the economy and continued rises project, uh, predicted through to 2019. Um, our economics team expecting the Fed funds rate to reach 3% by the middle of next year. And one of the things that always gets released with the Fed minutes is their so-called dot plot, which shows where the different members of the FOMC expect interest rates to be at various points in time. And it's worth reminding everyone, although this is not a change, that the median of the dots in the uh, predictions for 2020 is for rates to go up to 3.4% and stay there until at least the end of 2021. So that actually is above their central expectation for the longer term neutral rate, which is 3%. So as they're expecting policy to err on the side of being too tight in the coming years relative to neutral. Over the certain quarter overall, we have seen yields rising in most markets. So the US 10 years up 20 basis points, the UK 15, Germany 17, France 14, and even Japan up 9. And the US has been holding above the previously thought to be symbolically important 3% mark for, for some time now, but that hasn't actually led to the surge higher that had been predicted. Two other headline-grabbing events have been Italy and Argentina. In Italy, the markets reacted badly to the Italian budget, forecasting a budget deficit of 2.4% of GDP, which was much higher than had previously been expected. Whereas in Argentina, the currency plums new debts. At the start of this year, a dollar was worth 18 pesos, but that soared to almost 41 pesos more recently. Interest rates of 60% and inflation of 40%, it's a tough time in Argentina. And finally, in equity markets, Japan's good run has continued. So the MSCI Japan index was up about 2.4% last week and 6.5% over the third quarter. That's not far off actually the US's 7.5% return. But when we look year to date, it's the US that stands head and shoulders above the rest at 10.6% return. Japan's the next best at 2.7%, Europe and UK about 1%, and emerging markets losing money on a year-to-date basis. So, Philippe, starting with the Fed, what's your reaction to the latest announcement? Um, well, I took two things out of the announcement. Um, one was a change in wording where the word accommodative uh, was removed from the description of the carriage policy, and that's led to a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of discussion, certainly, uh, in market participants. Um, uh, and the second one was, the during the press conference, uh, the observation by Mr. Powell, the chairman, that, um, you know, that somehow forward guidance had uh, was not necessary anymore of some sort. It had passed its sell-by date. Yeah, because the market definitely took this removal of the word accommodative to mean that actually they thought that policy was nearer to more of a neutral level right now, but actually then 
they backtracked quite considerably, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, so he had correct that perception that removing the word accommodative uh, was a sign that they were close to finished or finished their tightening cycle. Um, in fact, he says we're removing it because the policy is still accommodative, but it doesn't need to be, and we don't mean it to be anymore. Um, so, anyway, uh, look, I, I realize this is close to being uh, close to philosophy rather than economics, but the point was always that uh, I think he feels very constrained by the by the the, the previous setups that, uh, that that he's inherited from from Mrs. Yellen, uh, particularly this dot plot that you've you've described that. Um, is not meant to be a forecast. It's not. It's just meant to be expectations. But yet, it's taken by the market as being uh, part of forward guidance and you know, holding the market's hands to prevent volatility. And I think mm-hmm. he actually is trying to break free from this and saying, look, you know, from this point onwards, we'll just react to the data. We don't have we we don't have a pre-agreed target. We're not trying to reach a specific outcome. We'll just react to the current data. And on the path of, on the on the basis of the current data, we should be tightening policies more. Because the economy is very strong, price pressures are up, uh, wages are up. Uh, you know, you see all sorts of uh, areas where where prices are, are going up, um, industrial prices uh, and so on, energy prices, and therefore, you know, there is no reason to be accommodative. And uh, on on current data, we're going to keep uh, tightening. So against that backdrop, what? So if it's if it's gone back say six months ago, people were saying three percent was this magic number, and actually if we saw treasury yields breaking through that, then that was going to be a sign that the trend had changed, and actually we'd see them moving materially higher. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Yes, it hasn't, um, and I and I think there may be one technical reason, which is to be fair, I think the majority of the macro community is short. You know, has been looking for rates to go up, um, has been looking for the signs, and, and you know, us along along with them. I mean, we've had a short position in U.S. rates for a long, long time, and it it gives us some moments of pleasure and sometimes of pain as well. Uh, but ultimately, all the signs are there. You know, I'm talking about price pressures and, and growth and everything else. Um, but you know, we're looking at the 10-year rate, and the 10-year rate obviously is the average of rates over the next 10 years. So it could very well be that rates need to go higher initially, but then ultimately, because parts of this growth that we're seeing today are not uh, not sustainable, particularly the fiscal boost, we know that that's going to end. Um, we also know that you know trade wars or trade frictions are going to limit growth in some ways. So there, there's some there's a body of of, of People out there say, yes, fine, okay, it's all going fine now, but you know, in two or three years' time, the economy will be slowing, partly as a response to the Fed's tightening, but partly because all these things will be fading, and therefore the economy will be going back to 2% growth. Will be unlikely to go into recession on its own, but it's going to go back to you know 2% growth. So there's no need for yields to really skyrocket. And does that, um, is that, I guess, in light of the moves up, we have seen this year, and the the kind of more medium to longer term pressures which may put a bit of a lid on what might happen to growth in yields. Has that, has that led to any changes in your positioning? Um, well, we've, so we've, we've, we've taken profits on, on our short because the yield have moved up mm-hmm. um, and we've reset some of our strikes and option strikes. So um, in, in a way, we keep, we're keeping the short with some, but a bit less risk on you know, if, if rates rally from here. Okay, so you've managed to kind of basically bank some of the profits but still positioned for further rises in yields um, yeah. should they come through. So, so uh, and, uh, some of you will have heard us say this uh, several times, that the main, the main puzzle today is really the shape of the yield curve because, mm-hmm. um, of course, as, as we keep saying, you know, uh, let's just say rates do go to 3% where the Fed expects to take them, uh, you know, uh, and, and we, we follow their predictions. 
how compatible is you know three percent cash rate with three percent bond you know term you know terminal or or ten year bond yield, um, and will investors agree to not have any term premium, any premium for the duration that risk that they're taking, um, and is that is that sustainable? Now there's you know a lot of people will tell you when the yield curve goes flat, then it means that there's a recession coming in you know, yeah. a few quarters. Um, there are a lot of papers being written, academic research on why we have negative term premium. Um, you know, possibly because the Fed's balance sheet is still, still very large, possibly because you have some non-economic buyers, um, uh, you know, like pension funds in the U.S., which are resetting their duration and mm-hmm. you know, offloading equities, buying more, more bonds, and so on, doing essentially the same trade that the U.K. pension funds did, did 10, 10, 15, 20 years ago, which inverted the U.K. curve, by the way, at the time, very severely. Yeah, the, the U.K. index link gilt curve has been inverted for as long as I can remember. The kinetic of the supply and demand mismatch is so great at the long end of the curve. Yeah. Yeah, and the Fed hasn't quite reset their new calendar, and the issuance is massive right now. It's all in bills, and you know, once they reset it, so you can argue there's lots of arguments for pro and against why the yield curve is so flat. It is still one of the biggest puzzles currently. Um, if the yield curve did normalize, it would normalize by the long end, obviously selling off rather than the short end moving, because the Fed is not going to change that trajectory. So we still think that the the, the weight of the the odds on the on the side of the rates moving up, okay. you know, not explosively, but they're going to keep moving up um, gently. Okay, I guess we we maybe maybe change tack thinking about Europe a bit now. As when we spoke last time, we mentioned then about Italy and the challenges of actually bringing together a government and some policies of parties who have very different views and ideologies, and then you have a finance minister who's been sitting in the middle, described as the only adult in the room trying to actually come to some agreement, and previously the market had thought that he would be able to come to some, there would be some discipline which would come from there, but I guess the announcement that the budget deficit is going to be higher than expected has certainly led to a reappraisal of that. Yes, and, and um, so just to be clear, our view was that Mr. Tria, the, the finance minister, um, who, who by the way doesn't feel that he's reporting to the two deputy PMs, but only to the prime minister and the president, um, and by the, he was approved, his nomination was approved by the president, so he's got some standing uh, on his own rather than just being the uh, essentially uh, a, a politician, um, a typical politician. So he clearly made it very clear that he would uh, defend the uh, the constitutional balance. Uh, of the budget, which is which is uh, uh, in the Italian constitution, so there is a, an obligation to balance budgets, and that he would preserve the, uh, the 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 good dialogue with Brussels during the European semester when when uh, national budgets are submitted for review. Um, and so he was very much seen as the guardian of those two uh, those mm-hmm. two uh, parts of the equilibrium, and uh, and it was our view that he would prevail, um, and we were clearly wrong. Um, clearly, over a very short term pe- time period, possibly even a weekend, um, the the budget went from 1.6% uh, target deficit to 24 um, and largely because all of a sudden he had to incorporate some of the priorities, electoral priorities of the of the left and the right. Yeah. Um, and but it, I wouldn't say this is the the dynamic right now. It's it's obviously quite nasty because if he didn't. If you were to leave and basically say, "Look, I've had enough. I can't manage this process," then I think we're, you know, it's going to be at least temporarily in a very bad place. The main issue is the long, is the more, is the longer term message is being sent because if you, if the left wants a, a universal income, 
is not very high, but still you need to, 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 to give it to millions of people. Um, and the right wants a flat tax, which they've said was, which is, they're not going to have, but it's some tax simplification, which also creates more of a flat tax. Plus, they agree to reverse part of the, the, uh, the pension reform. Those three things will break the back of the Italian budget. There is no way that Italy, with no growth, can afford this. So, and actually, just to be clear, so that's saying that so the 2.4% budget deficit actually doesn't take account of all of these extra factors. And actually, the situation, both on the GDP side, but particularly on the debt side, could actually end up a lot worse than, than currently forecast. Yeah, so the government's current explanation is, look, this will help stimulate growth, and therefore you'll get a bit more growth, and therefore it's not quite true that the deficit, you know, the, the debt to GDP will be any worse than it would have been otherwise. And you know, I'm sure we can live with those arguments for a while, but, but yes, if those policies do get implemented fully, then there is no way you know, uh, for, for, you know, for the Italian budget to stabilize. And, and the issue, I mean, as you've just hinted, the issue is Italy's growth rate has been between 1% and 1.5% at the best over the last 20 years almost. Yeah. Suddenly, since the financial crisis, it has it's hardly grown. Um, and meanwhile, uh, the bond yields are at 3%. So if you think about real uh, nominal growth rates, not because obviously you need to compare nominal with nominal, but if you compare the, the Italian growth at, say, 1 plus inflation at 1 to 1.5, it's 2.5%, it's still below the level required to pay off your, your debt, your interest, the interest on your debt, never mind the principal. Mm-hmm. And so let's just say that that rates go, continue to go up to 3.5 or 4, well, it's, it's game over. There is no way you can generate the nominal growth to, to, to pay off that interest. And, th- and therefore, the debt-to-GDP trajectory will revert back to, to growth, and then there's just no end in sight. So the big sustainable debt-sustainability problem brewing here, then, I guess, is, is that, is this, has has the recent changes led to any um, alterations in how you're positioned regarding Italian bonds? Did you have much exposure yeah. running into the, the well, weekend? We did. So we, we had been long Italian uh, bonds, uh, partly because we thought the sell-off previously had been overdone. So we, we bought in um, and we basically exited the position as soon as we saw the news. So the, the, the team basically, there was a, what we call a thesis violation. And you know when the reason for holding the position goes, the position goes too. Yeah. So we closed it. Um, uh, and you know we'll just re-examine the facts, but right now we're just sitting on the fence. And did you mind, when, Kevin? That you did you enter at a uh, similar price when you closed out? Like did that trade actually yield the profit? Or yeah, we actually so we bought very well. So okay. we, we, uh, we it wasn't yeah. You know, obviously we 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 could have had a, a better yeah. <laughs> outcome. Um, but it's not like we left that much money on the table. Uh, but it's just very disappointing because we thought, uh, you know, we thought the thesis were holding, and, and pretty much all had all the ducks, in the, you know, lined up, and we we played that quite well um, until the day of the news Friday. Yeah, well, and I guess it's still a good example of your the, the discipline and process that actually that um, when the original thesis was broken, actually that did lead to changes rather than holding on to it. So because of any biases about what you previously thought. Um, yeah, but well, in this case, you know, uh, we're, I mean, for, for those of you who, who read our roadmap and our signposts and everything, you know, you know that these are things that we identify up front, and this is the cause for holding it. So, yes, the discipline is there. Yeah. If, the, if the reason for it goes, the position goes. Okay. And if we move now to think about emerging markets, um, Argentina has been in the news most recently, but it's one of a series of seemingly unconnected events across a range of emerging economies, which overall contribute to a general feeling of um, downbeat mood regarding emerging markets. Um, what, what did, what's your opinion on, on that? So, so the general mood is obviously poor for a couple of reasons: uh, trade frictions, trade walls for for economies that are very open to trade and have 
need trade as an engine of growth uh, is obviously uh, bad news, even if in the end it's not quite clear that it's going to be so obviously bad, but at least it, 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 it's not good for sentiment. But also the tightening in dollar liquidity globally is probably the one thing that links all these specific situations. Yeah. So you have Turkey here for completely different reasons, Argentina, Brazil's got politics coming, uh, South Africa has had, uh, again, a drought and, and other issues and, 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 and some political change. So there is, there is no connection between all those events. Um, uh, and, and by the way, Argentina is also coming out of a very severe drought, which is devastated in its agricultural exports, agricultural sector, which is a big part of its export. So it's had, again, completely unconnected to other economic events, but it's, it's just happened at a time when, uh, when the market was starting to have cold feet, and, and ultimately um, Argentina's lost the credibility of the, the market and had to go to the IMF to... To restore uh, to restore this liquidity situation, does that, does that lead to a buying opportunity? Do you think? Well, first of all, we still we we have we have some dollar bonds in Argentina, so we haven't suffered the currency meltdown that you've you've mentioned. Um, the currency is obviously very cheap, and the question is, is, is it a buy here? Um, and the central bank has said they would defend uh, forty four versus the dollar as a as a as a parity. Um, it's not clear that they have that much liquidity to do it, but not like people alone, you know, the, the, the market isn't, there's no one who's looking to sell. However, on the dollar side, the, the dollar bonds, um, quite a few people have bought in the Argentinian uh, you know, uh, recovery, including us. Um, so we all, we all, um, you know, some of the province of Buenos Aires and you know, some of the, the better, more liquid issuers in, in dollars that we know quite well. And the bond prices have obviously fallen. They've bounced quite a bit after the IMF announcement. Mm -hmm. um, but we also know that the market's quite long. So uh, it's going to be a very slow bounce. Okay. Um, you know, we still, the big opportunity clearly is, is more the local currency now. Um, we still think that, you know, there's, the province of Buenos Aires is not going to default. So it's not, we don't have a credit event issue right here. But, um, but it's clearly uh, the path of growth until the next uh, election next year is going to be very, very tough because with rates at 60%, you know, you're choking off domestic demand um, yeah. and you're, you're, it's going to be a domestic recession and a reset, if you will, for, for, the, for, for the economic uh, uh, competitiveness um, in, the, in the market. So it's going to be a pretty tough time, as you said, for Argentina for the next year. And, um, and uh, you know, we think they come out the other end, but you know, there's an election to be yeah. tested a year from now. And so we're, we're running close to the end of the corner, but just one thing we wanted to touch on very briefly is something that's going on in the background, and it's just to flag this up so people are aware of it, is the moves to phase out LIBOR and replace them with um, alternative um, financing um, measures. This LIBOR's plugged into so many parts of our financial system, into benchmarks, into performance objectives, into swaps, floating rate notes. Um, we haven't got time to discuss that today, except just to flag that up, and it is something that we will be returning to on, on later calls. Um, so just to sum up, I think we've taken some profits in a position on US yields rising, but are still positioned for some further moves higher. Um, we also got out of some long Italian um, government bond positions as well at a profit, um, but actually there has been a change in the environment there and the original view as to the commitment to budget uh, restraint no longer seems to, to hold. Argentina is, is kind of following the IMF playbook at the moment, but it's going to be a tough few years and it remains to be seen what happens. 
And um, I would recommend people just keep their eyes on developments regarding LIBOR because this will have a very large impact on a large part of our book of clients. So with that, thank you very much, thank Philippe, you. and thank you very much, everyone, for your time. This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.